The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record us. We are live. Welcome, everybody. Today is April 20th. 2022. It is 6.03 p.m. and we are lucky enough to be joined by Jess Kosa. So I'm going to let Kate do the introduction. Yeah, um, you guys recognize Jeff. Uh, he's been here before, um, but I asked Jeff to come on today and we pushed it to a different time because he was doing a, instead of being up at 1.30 in the morning, no one does more, talks to more reporters in tech, law and technology space than Jeff. Kosif, I think this is like, this is like, you just are like reporter, like a journalist's guardian angel. Whenever you need a quote, whenever you need something like Jeff will make time for you. It's amazing. Um, and it's not just because you're selling books because the section 230 book, as we talked about, was like one of the only non-trade books, I think, to like ever like legal books to ever like have to immediately do a rush second printing um, after section 230. Um became like uh, at the fore of controversy. Um, and so your new book, which we've talked about before, The United States of Anonymous, uh, uh, which is incredible. We'll put a link to it in the chat in a second. Um, and you've been on to talk about before it came out, but since then it's come out officially. Um, and in your usual way, it is like, it is almost as if your research agenda is sets the research agenda for the entire country, I think. Like, first it was that whole book about Section 230. Now we're talking about anonymity, and there was a huge controversy yesterday, which we'll, we'll get into. Um, but this was just kind of perfect. Welcome back to the show. It's so nice to have you. Make your spiel about how everything you say is your personal belief and not that of the U.S. government. Yeah, I act so I have to say, particularly because over the past few days, I have been accused of being a state actor whose tweets are subject to FOIA. And if I block <laughs> Did Marjorie anyone, Taylor would... Green accuse No, her? no, this was better. Uh, if I block anyone, it's basically like Trump blocking people on Twitter when he was president. So, um, yeah, so that so that's what I've been dealing with. Uh, so, yeah. I'm only speaking on my own behalf. I'm not speaking on behalf of the Naval Academy, the Navy, or the Department of Defense. So, uh, and I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not directing the military policy. I'm just going to be like, thank God. but what would the Naval Academy say if the Naval Academy <laughs> could talk <laughs> uh, over and over again? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not trying to get you in any trouble. Um, so let's talk about what happened yesterday with the Washington Post and Taylor Lorenz. Um, Taylor Lorenz is, for people unaware, um, a reporter, a columnist for the Washington Post. She covers technology and culture, um, and uh, she is was formerly at the New York Times. She has a slight history of being controversial um, for pushing kind of some, I would say, like pushing, stretching, like kind of testing the limits of like kind of some ethical journalism, and it's, you know, 
we're not here to adjudicate all of that, but that's just kind of some of the some of kind of the things that have happened before. She has a history of reaching out to 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 younger um, younger to people who are minors that are like you know in like their teens or whatever that have um, that have social media accounts. Um, and asking them questions and getting them to go on the record. And that has been controversial. She left the New York Times in part because there was, I think, some controversy about the things that she was going to be allowed to publish for them and the types of stories that she wanted to work on. And the Washington Post kind of agreed to give her a little bit more bandwidth. And that seems to have been the case. Uh, she has been publishing prolifically at the Washington Post. She's had some really great scoops. She had um, an excellent scoop a couple of weeks ago about um, which is not particularly new, but was about Facebook's um, like work to try to push like kind of an anti-TikTok and other anti-platform agendas through um, through lobbying in Washington, some other types of things. But yesterday, um, I woke up to see the entire of my in my entire Twitter feed discussing, for reasons I couldn't figure out, anonymous speech and the de-anonymization of individuals. And specifically, there was a tweet from Alex Stamos, who's been on the show too, um, saying that de-anonymizing an individual was doxing, no matter kind of how you cut it. Um, and de-anonymizing someone was was like, was just not an ethical practice for, for journalism. So what is doxing? I think we've talked about it briefly on the show before, but doxing as a reminder is the, like, is using, um, Putting, making public people's private contact information, um, usually it is more specific than just their name. Usually it is around um, their address, their telephone number, their place of work, um, anything kind of so, or where they go to school, things like that, for the purposes, the intentionality of harassing them. So I don't know that Taylor Lorenz did this, although we can talk about that, for the purposes of harassing this person. But Taylor Lorenz had written an article that took on libs of TikTok, which is a very famous, um, a, a, an increasingly famous, very well followed by conservative Repub conservatives and Republicans um, uh, uh, TikTok account, anonymous account that basically documents liberal views on TikTok for the purposes of sending more or less people to harass those libs to own the libs and to take them and like it picks out it cherry picks like individuals it sets these masses on them it is definitely like some type of it is some type of weird hybrid of speech and threat that we and dangerous speech that we kind of have to deal with in this day and age with um with private public in these private public spaces but taylor had figured out who uh, libs of TikTok really was, published her name, where she worked, the town that she lived in, um, a number of things to that nature. The person, I think, the thing that really pushed Taylor to, to publish this article, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, Jeff, was that the woman who was libs of TikTok had uh, gone on Tucker Carlson kind of in a disguised format and to to preserve her identity so she actively tried to maintain her anonymity but gone on tucker carlson and to talk about the account and like what it does and shortly after that like a couple of days after that taylor's article came out and this started a firestorm on twitter among people in tech um and journalism and in and, and the free speech world about when anonymity 
um, should be preserved, when it shouldn't, uh, all of those types of things. And immediately, Jeff was like, hey, some people are going to be sending me lots of email requests. Jeff's email blew up and he's up until 1.30 in the morning doing doing radio hits. I'm not so, up until 1.30 in the morning. I know, I know. I I'm pre-gape. <laughs> I know. You, in lieu of yes. being up until 1.30 in the morning, yes. you came on the show today and recorded your your yeah. uh, your hit earlier. But anyway, so is that a fair kind of summary of the of the Lorenz scandal? Yeah, it is. It's um I, I think the the one thing that I would add is that at least based on her article, it looks like the way that she was able to identify the person was through domain name registry, that her uh, real name and contact information was listed in the Whois database, which is really hard to, to anonymize. People do it, but it does take additional work. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think whether it's doxing is really interesting, but also I'm not sure if that's really the right question because it's not, I, I actually did, I was asked about it enough that I just did a thread where on Twitter where I just went and found as many sort of more official doxing definitions uh, from DHS as well as various court opinions that have, they, they try to define doxing and sometimes they go to the dictionary, sometimes they come up with their own definitions. And what Taylor did for some of the definitions would probably fit into it and for others it wouldn't or it might uh, some are limited to malicious purposes some are limited to non-public information but dhs for example says that you could dock someone based on public information but targeting it someone who doesn't uh who who it's used to unmask for example so I, I think that, you know, is it doxing? I, I don't know. I mean, depending, uh, but, but I don't know if that's the issue. I mean, I think that there's the legal issue, which I don't think there's any legal barrier to what the Washington Post did. So the, I, I mean, they could, they, they were fully within their rights to do it and there's not litigation. I mean, unless they got it wrong, uh, then, then there would be, uh, some liability. It's more of a journalism ethics issue. Uh, it is definitely um, more of a journalism yeah. ethics issue. But you're a former journalist. I am current journalist sometimes. I am a former journalist and current journalist. GDF is a law student. Um, so. um, but I would I would ask both of you this question. Is it is it just a matter of perspective or what really distinguishes um, libs of TikTok um, ver uh, from Publius or the farmer from Pennsylvania or someone who used a pseudonym for political speech? And how should we assess that within the Taylor Lorenz scandal? Great question for Jeff. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that the... I, I try not to really look at, you know, what what's the particular motivation. Mm -hmm. I look at, you know, more what are the legal restrictions, what might be the harms, um, both of disclosing someone's identity as well as not disclosing their identity. I, I've seen a lot of discussion about, you know, well, the article was totally fine because this person is posting this horrible stuff. And I don't know if that's really the right question to be asking. Uh, I, I 
like to be a bit more fair and say what's the so what's the public interest in knowing this? And that's tough. I don't I don't necessarily think there's a clear cut answer there. Um, when I my first paying journalism job was an internship on the weekly newspaper on Mackinac Island, Michigan, which does not have cars. Um, it, it was an interesting place uh, run by a very long term time journalist journalism professor. Um, and he had above all our computers, uh, he had us uh, put a little sign that said, what does the story mean to the reader? And that's kind of, I, I think about that, I have that here. Um, because what what is the benefit? I So if the person who was running libs of TikTok was some sort of politician or someone of any prominence or import, in society outside of libs of TikTok, okay. it would be a clear, clear cut. Of course, you publish it. The fact that she she really didn't have much of a profile or much power outside of that, I think there's definitely a reason, an argument to publish it. But it's not like this overwhelming. It, it, it's not like it, an easy answer to me, one way or the other. Okay. And can I ask one more follow-up question before I'd like to go back to the doxing conversation you guys started? And I apologize. I've kind of re like put us on a different path. But one of the things that um, I started your book, Jeff, and so one of the things that you mentioned in the beginning of the book is you set up Junius in England and you give like a historical precedent for a person who pat like really protected their identity to the point where it's still debated who this writer was. And now, so my question here is, could we say that since it was ID'd through a domain name registry, that the distinguishing factor here in terms of protecting the user's information is that now in order to be considered a true pseudonym or a true anonymized source, we have to have a level of sophistication regarding the technology or the medium we're using? Or is that, thinking too much about the tech and not enough about the speech. No, I think we have to think about both. And uh, in my book, I have a whole chapter about people who are unmasked through some sort of mosaic type of operations where they think that they're being anonymous, but there's enough public information about them that oftentimes that they put out. Uh, so one example that I talk about in the book is uh, a guy who it seems like half of the online speech cases go back to auto admit. Um, so this this was that a horrible um, case where two law students were harassed like more than a decade ago, but apparently it's still online and it came up in the news about like two years ago because uh, the head writer for the Tucker, Tucker Carlson show had been posting under a pseudonym all of these horrifically racist things and sexist things. And uh, he had a pseudonym, but the people people who followed it uh, were able to sort of piece together based on different clues, like you said, clues about like where he went on vacation and th things like that, and gave it to the CNN reporter who was able to verify based on this information. Uh, I. I wasn't able to reach him for the book, so I don't know what he was thinking, but I'd imagine that he probably didn't think that he was going to be unmasked. But there's a lot of cases like that where people just aren't aware. And, and there's not so much the law can do for that, for that 
uh, people have to be aware of the possible ways that they can be unmasked and take operational precautions. Um, there is a role for the law, such as the First Amendment preventing compelled disclosure, privacy law from hopefully at some point restricting data brokers, but uh, a lot of it really does come down to individuals. So, I mean, if you're operating a very inflammatory uh, Twitter account, then perhaps don't have a domain associated with it where your name is registered. Uh, that that That's a f fairly easy one. Yeah. I mean, so let's just, so let's talk about registrations because it's not just domain names. That's one type, mm -hmm. right? But there's I mean, people, and so this was in the, the one of the first things that I saw, not knowing what this was even related to, and just seeing Alex's tweets. Uh, literally, it was all I saw. I was like, I don't even know what this is talking about. Um, and I texted him, and then he like was like, oh, this is like this whole Lorenz article, and I went and read it. But um, was that it was uh, that he mentioned public records and that this was like, so this, and then I'd like looked at the rest of the thread and it was still, you know, in the way that Twitter does is so that the, the conversation already accelerated so that it was almost impossible to discern still what people were talking about in the underlying thing, because that had gotten, it had got, it had moved so fast already, kind of like the, the Will Smith slap. Um, but anyways, the, what I was going to say was that there was, um, one of the things that I was just teaching because in property law was the public records databases for, for, for registering, for registering and recording your deed um, and the transfer of title. And um, one of, and like, never mind court record databases, right? And like all of these things. And one of the things that you constantly talk about, and I think is a great thing to talk about is how expensive PACER is and how like, and how, and we've had, um, we've had, we've talked about that on this, this, uh, the show also, when there was the Kate court case around this, um, a couple of, I guess it was almost a year ago, but anyways, the, I digress. What I was basically trying to say was that these public record databases have this trade-off. You have access to information and you have an ability to be able to have information so that you can make smart, efficient decisions about buying land or knowing what the encumbrances are on title or like understanding that there is a lien subject to the mortgage or that there's all of these other types of things on like something like that are really good for people to know that you have fraud happen all the time and having access to those types of databases is super important. And then there are things like this, which is like, you can go and like, and there, and like, what I want to point out to people is the amount of friction that is present in various levels of these public records. So there is no way that like Taylor Lorenz found libs of TikToks and de-anonymized her by Google search. Like, she figured out, she knew that there was going to be a registry and that there was going to be a person who was registered. I, I mean, I've like, in desperate moments, I have done this uh, at various times, like to try to figure out things about people, not to publish that information, but to try to like find a place, like attorneys do it to find out where to serve people. There's lots of different ways to try to use this type of thing. It's de-indexed. A lot of these records are de-indexed. So they're not showing, when I say de-indexed, I mean, it's not showing up in an indexed search like Google. So it's de-indexed. So you're not like looking through the Chicago public records 
database of land deeds, right? Uh, you have to go and register your real name or a name, go and look. Sometimes you have to pay a couple cents a page like you do with PACER or whatever. And those types of frictions actually keep a fair amount of public records a little bit private. And like what is what the I think what is so interesting here is that those types of limits were exactly what was present here. It was a free database that she I'm that she like figured out this de-anonymized her from. Um I kind of want to know what you think about those types of public records databases and how they fit into a modern culture. You especially when you're a person who resents, and I think rightfully, paying so much for PACER or other types of court records. Yeah, so I mean, for court records, and so I, I like public records, I like having them available, I like having them easily available. Um, but the way that PACER is supposed to work in theory is that certain types of PII are supposed to be redacted before it's publicly filed. And I, the only reason that I even know this is because the district judge who I clerked for was very adamant about this. She was very cautious about making sure that the, anyone involved in litigation. Incredibly important in stalking or domestic yeah. violence cases. It's really, it's critical. Yeah. But, but I think there's a difference between that and making it, making the entire document inaccessible. Um, so I, I, I think that you can, but the way that PACER actually works. But would PII, this, by the way, include a name? Not not just a, no, a name. A PII name. is personally identifiable yeah. information. Sorry, I should. Yeah, so true. so the courts, and this was, um, this was going back about a decade, so I don't know what their current policy is, but I know it was like addresses, personal home addresses, um, phone, home phone numbers, um, any family information, those sorts of things uh, had social security numbers, obviously. But what I'll say is someone who spends thousands of dollars on PACER every year uh, and spends a lot of my time looking through PACER documents is that uh, a lot of judges do not enforce it. Uh, and I've, I've actually, in some cases, called the clerk's offices and I'm like, hey, you've got this docket that has this really personal information on it. And I don't know if they ever do anything about it because I don't want to pay again on PACER to see. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a balance that can that you can strike. What would you, so the other thing that people were really saying was there was a kind of, I think a little bit of a straw man argument, but I'm interested in if you agreed with me that a lot of people were saying that all of this was just in the, in service of, of investigative journalism, that if someone does something like Whitewater or like anything like or Watergate, like or whatever, Watergate is actually what it was like, you de-anonymize the, the Watergate burglars um, and you show up in court and you see who they are and you hear their names listed out. Right. Um, and then you publish that, uh, that there's no type of and like that's obviously criminal activity. This wasn't necessarily criminal activity, although libs of TikTok could arguably said to be make to like be using speech in a way to harass or stalk or um, punish um, individuals and make their lives miserable. I don't know. What do you think about kind of the that type of like this is just good investigative journalism claim? 
I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. From what I know, and I actually over the past, I did not spend much time on libs of TikTok until yesterday. So I'm not an expert on libs of TikTok. I Bless personally you. do not care for it. And I find <laughs> some of it very abhorrent. Um, I, I don't know if we're getting to Watergate levels here. And I, I think uh, putting it in perspective, um, again, it comes back to what does this mean to the reader? So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not totally there yet. Like I, I get it. It's not. And from a fairness perspective, if you're just going to look at, you know, uh, you know, an eye for an eye, uh, this account well, does things to people and and that that's the argument that i hear that i've heard a lot over the past days you know they this this account can ruin people's lives when they post these videos with these comments and that it ends up on fox news and politicians see it so i get that but i also think you know okay that that's a fairness issue but what how does it move forward when you're saying okay it's a real estate person in brooklyn I, I don't know. I, I'm not that that's why I'm really I don't have I usually have really strong opinions on things. And I for this I I I think it really there are reasonable arguments both ways. I'm gonna pause on the fairness thing and GDF, feel free to jump in anytime, but I wanna ask a follow-up question, which is one of the things we've talked about both you and I on the show and just you and I talk about generally is the idea of public figures and how that changes. And this is typically seen in the law that for, for simplicity's sake, let's just say that there is an idea in the law that you thrust yourself into some type of controversy and then you kind of relinquish a right to your anonymity and your privacy by putting yourself into the, into, in the midst of controversy. Do you like, I, uh, do you think that Tucker Carl the Tucker Carlson appearance was one that raised the profile of this anonymous poster so much as to thrust her into controversy. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's an argument even grounded in the law for that. I mean, in the I think you're kind of alluding to Gertz. I'm totally um, alluding to Gertz. Yeah. I just didn't want to kind of get <laughs> into it because it's like I didn't want to get into the defamation because it's not because to like, yeah, anyways. But yeah. yeah. So, I mean, basically, the, the, it, there's a concept in the law of self-help, which is basically the it's the Supreme Court's rationale for saying that we're going to make it uh, much harder for a plaintiff who's a public official or a public figure to uh, recover damages for for defamation than we are for a private figure. And this was a 1974 court opinion. And it was basically saying, you know, that there, there were two reasons. One is that they've kind of thrust themselves into the spotlight. And the second kind of related is that they have a greater capacity because of that to exercise self-help or counter speech. Mm -hmm. And while a private figure does not have that ability yet, um, there, I, I actually am just kind of for my next book I'm writing, I'm just finishing up a chapter on this very issue about uh, dealing with misinformation through self-help and counter speech. And one of the things that obviously you have to grapple with is it's not 1974 anymore. So in 1974, the 
self-help was available to very few people, very privileged few. Uh, and that's not really the case now. I mean, obviously, though, if Kim Kardashian were to tweet something that's different than someone who might have like 50 followers. So, it, but but I, I do think that there, that whole overall Gertz reasoning does not, not really legally, but at least just sort of logically, it does weigh more in favor of saying, okay, she is more subject to, to this because she is going public. I, I'd say that also the fact that she has this widely followed Twitter account that all that that weighs in favor probably just as much as the Tucker Carlson appearance. Yeah, like just the huge number of followers gives her a massive amount of self help, and then like on top of that, but then I mean to the other, if I was her attorney, the other side of that would be like TikTok or TikTok, TikTok or Twitter or whoever, any private platform could take it away in a second, and she would have no no legal mm -hmm. recourse, and so all of that ability at self help is like pretty much. Like how, if it's at the whim of another private entity that you have no type of record, how how deep does that type of how deep does that type of celebrity or or, or access really lie? Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I think that there are ways to to sort of facilitate self help, but I I don't I don't think it's proportional for like a purely private figure. Um, but yeah, so, so no, I mean, I, I do think that that does weigh in favor of saying, yeah, it's, it's fair game. Um, GDF, I don't want to like keep going. No, no I'm, I'm loving this conversation because the concept of an influencer is so novel that it also, and their primary function most of the time is a marketing function in which one they're trying to uh, sell a some sort of good to the public. And so then that adds like a whole commercial element on top of it, in which case, like, could we argue that this account is a commercial speech type thing? Because it is technically like, she's probably generating some revenue from the ads or whatever is associated with it. And I don't know enough to really speak to that with specificity. But I think that that's something that will eventually be kind of built in. I don't think that the, as far as I know, from when we wrote, when I wrote Facebook v. Sullivan, there's not, which dealt with this kind of idea, there is not yet a recognition of the law of like an influencer, right? And the commercial, the commercial slash celebrity mashup that is kind of like created in that entity, um, the personal branding kind of idea. Um, but let's get to kind of, I mean, I'm, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, GDF. Um, so we'll just kind of like, we'll get to like the real heart of like my final real question that I'm kind of curious about, Jeff. Like, okay, so the last and most maybe kind of, I think, spurious argument that, so I guess this is why I saved it for last because it feels the least legal to me, is the ideological one, which was essentially that like, People on the left didn't like what Libs of TikTok was doing. Either they didn't like specifically the content for content's sake, and they didn't like the effect, which was to send basically these factions, these mob factions after totally like these plucked from the ether kind of minor types of public uh, accounts and throw all of this shade at them and then get them harassed. And so there was this idea 
And to this, I will kind of conjure up Danielle Citron. And the first time I met her in 2014, when she was doing um, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace book tour, and she was at Yale ISP. And I was channeling Jill Filipovic um, and Jill's auto admin controversy, which was not anonymous. She was not one of the anonymous people that that um, Jeff said before. She was quite public about it because she had a very public feminist blogging profile at the time. And Jill had a remarkable self-help measure. Jill basically decided when a bunch of she was at NYU law school, she was being serially harassed on this website there it was ruining the google searches for her to get a potential job she was in her 20s and she called on basically all of these kind of bloggers to um reverse google bomb her to like create basically she basically reverse google bombed herself so that like she replaced all of like positive types of of reference to her in google search um and I brought this up to Danielle, who I just met that day for the first time, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, and like, and she and Danielle was like, well, of course, like you can't rely on just that type of normative self-help only. Like, of course, we have to have legal mechanisms because otherwise you get to in this Hobbesian kind of like end game. And by that, she means like the Hobbesian endgame being kind of like this idea that you meet violence with violence, it just gets more violence and more violence, more violence, and it just never ends. But I saw that being referenced yesterday. And I saw Lorenz saying this on her own Twitter feed. It was like, she brought this on herself. She has issued all of this violence against people. This violence that we're bringing on her, this de-anonymization is deserved. Um, and I found that to be the worst possible, most simplistic kind of like, where does this end and how does this not turn on you too, Taylor, type of like, or anyone else like type of thing. And so I'm curious what you thought of that. Well, I mean, I think that I, I'm assuming you've seen the MSNBC interview that she did a few no. weeks ago. Who? Where that Taylor did a few weeks ago, where she was talking very heartfelt about uh, the harassment that she's experienced due to people who are. Upset oh, yes, I did. Like, yeah, because she's like had this. And I think a lot of people brought that up to her. It was like, how could you do this to someone else having been through what you've been through? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in an ideal world, I and I know we're not in an ideal world. So I'm just going to talk like professor and not like real world. And that is like, we would all just stop all of or, or at least be a little kinder uh, like the libs of TikTok would not be so re revolting and we wouldn't sort of have to i i, I just kind of it, it would be nice if we didn't sort of get to this place where it's like let's unmask someone and then let's criticize the person for unmasking and then have send people to their families and it's like okay we, we've got some like real problems going on in the country right now and we also have some real free speech threats like the mm -hmm. fact that the supreme court in the next few years will possibly overturn sullivan uh like that that's like actual free speech threats and we're focusing on like uh, on this one issue which is important but i i don't know i i just kind of i i don't again i i, I think that everyone should consider the harms of uh, exposing public information about people. I'll tell you one of the 
things that I felt the worst about when I was a business reporter. This was like right out of college. And I was a business reporter for uh, the Oregonian newspaper. And there, it was like right after the dot-com crash. So there were like every company was laying everyone off. And I found out about this one round of layoffs. Uh, and I, I, I listed some of the executives or who I thought were the executives who were laid off. And some of them weren't terribly high up in the company. And I heard from one of them and it was accurate, but she was just like, you know, I, I didn't tell my friends or family and I felt awful about that. Like that made me feel like I, it, because it's like, okay, you don't necessarily, yeah, she's going to recover, but it's like having some humanity go goes a long way and not constantly being at war. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think we're, we might be past that, but um, it, it has been fairly depressing to see like all of the people on the right now coming out and making it seem like Keller Lorenz is this like threat to free society. And it's hmm. like, I, I think we need a little perspective. I also just want to quickly add before I let GDF kind of weigh in, um, I'll never forget uh, I wrote a story and I'm not going to say what story and I'm not going to say when or for wh where, but I wrote a story and there was a person who was a very high profile person and had done something that had been fairly high profile in the community that they were a part of um, that had been much discussed and maligned. But it was still, even given kind of the modern day and age, it had managed to kind of stay in that private sphere. But it was like the type of thing I had, I mean, I'd obviously heard about it because I had spent so much time in this world and like had known about it and everything. And it was, so it was not public. It was like, there's no good term for this. It's just like the, the spheres hadn't intersected. And I felt like I fought with my editor really hard to not put this kind of thing to put this into the piece into a piece because I thought that it would just that it had no relevance necessarily to the piece. Like it kind of did because like it kind of a lot like gave some color to kind of the person's like political affiliations and like political viewpoints, but it didn't really have a huge effect. And I fought really hard, and my editor just like totally overruled me and was like, "This is just like." openly like has been written about by multiple outlets even though they're local but like multiple outlets have written about this this is fair game but like this was a national publication and i didn't want to put it in and like uh and give it that kind of gas and it wasn't gonna like result in this person was gonna be fine it just was like I had a conversation with a person and they were just so deeply embarrassed and ashamed that they had done this thing and like said this thing that they had said. And I felt really bad for them. Like I kind of have been there. Right. And like, I didn't, you know, but anyways, this is just, this is like, people don't realize that reporters do this and editors do this behind the scenes much more often than they realize. And, and I also think one thing to keep in mind is like this, it, this is a big deal. Like, in our very small little world um but put it i i put things in perspective my my wife is very offline and she has like a real job that does not involve like people <laughs> yelling at her about fires in crowded theaters and uh she does not on twitter or anything like that so i was actually just trying yesterday to explain the taylor lorenz thing to her 
And as I was explaining it to her, I thought I, I sound like a crazy person, like <laughs> talking about like libs of TikTok, and then like Donald Trump Jr. has gotten involved, and like it sounds like this crazy. And I'm like trying to explain to someone who actually does like real things all day, like this is no, this is really important libs of TikTok, and I, I think <laughs> it is important to keep in perspective that many more people probably have her perspective of like not being exposed to this constantly. And it, it perhaps is not the most important issue out there. Yeah. I mean, both of you have touched on a couple of key points that I think really kind of encompass this whole situation so well. I mean, we talk about escalation and how our discourse has become so hyperbolic. Everything is the worst. Everything is an attack. We have this sense of otherism in our culture. And so much of it, I wonder, is whether it's just a lack of understanding of the, the platforms we're using or the technology we're using, and if it's a generational thing, because I, I, I hope that's not the case. But if it is, then maybe we have a little bit of hope that the call, the call or the rallying cry of a suppressed oppositional voice will age out of the discourse and therefore will allow space for a more nuanced conversation and discourse again, which is what I can only hope. Um, because it just seems like the appeal to these social political bodies and these like very specific sides <laughs> just escalates everything. And then there's just no room to change. And even for individuals, and isn't that what we all hope to do in a conversation or a dialogue or in a democracy is get someone to change a little bit and have us meet in the middle. So, I mean, I, th I think that having more conversations like this is the most important thing we can do. <laughs> yeah. And I I'm mean, gonna, yeah. I'm going to bring in more questions. people in or yes. whatever. Um, but I was going to say that, I mean, so Jeff, don't you think that kind of the fun part of our jobs is like that we get to play with both like a pretty, I mean, so I was just actually explaining this to someone the other day, which was that like the idea that the metaverse of the metaverse is actually not, I was like, it was James Grimmelman. Um, we were talking about kind of the idea of the metaverse and what law will govern it. And he was saying that his views haven't changed since the early 2000s, that he thinks that once there's physical manifestations of things, it'll be very much governed by like trespass law and like property law and like things like that. Um, and I think this is interesting because I do think that there is something about these platforms. And when I say platforms, I mean like text-based, like pri still primarily text and video and voice-based, like two-dimensional interactions like we're having now that are just 100% about speech and fall straight into a hole in all of law, which is speech. Like speech is just so different. We've never known how to police it. There's no good answers. It's always like the trade-offs are someone's going to be upset. No one's going to be happy, like type of thing when, when you're doing speech and it evolves constantly. Um, and so I guess I'm kind of just very interested to know if you think that that, like, do you think, do you kind of agree with that assessment? Do you think that the metaverse is going to be any different in like how we deal with these spaces? I I don't know. I mean, I legally, I think it would sort of have to evolve. I, I think there's a lot of, I, I wouldn't even know the answer to how the law would apply in uh, to these new situations. I think uh socially i definitely think so so i mean i one thing that i do i 
you might imagine I get some hate email occasionally. <laughs> and <laughs> what, what I often, not often, but sometimes I still do, I do it less now. I invite the person to get on a Zoom with me to have a chat. Like, I'm like, okay, it's usually like, I want you dead, you're awful. They'll often throw in some like anti-Semitic stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I say, okay, well, let, let's, let's chat about this. You seem really angry about this. And I've never once gotten anyone to take me up on that offer because it's so much easier wow. to just like yell this vitriol than look someone in the eyes, even if it's just virtually or even talk with them on the phone. Um, it's much harder to ju just sort of to do that. It's much e it's easier when you're just typing it and sending it. That is definitely easier. I'd also say it's easier to yell up and forget that the person to like, you know, not to like, I, I don't really love the term punching up or punching down. I think it's mm -hmm. like overly reductionist because it's all just mm -hmm. punching. Like, like I just, which I don't think is a particularly nice thing anyway, to make your point. But I do think that people think that punching up is okay. And at the other end of things, like even in the crazy hurt story that I did, like I like endeavored very, 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 very hard to not aim any of the things that had happened at any of the individuals who had like served me to never like to not try to like ruin their lives in any way to like not sit like they were just doing their jobs and kind of once i got in the phone with a lot of the hurts executives i kind of realized that i'd ruined their days like i like <laughs> i thought i was punching into like the hurts kind of scenario and i was like oh i kind of feel bad like these people, even though they're getting paid tons of money and are executives and they have to deal with this type of thing and they're running a sham organization, like it's still just a big organization. They're trying their best and I'm ruining their lives for like, they're like yeah. ruining the day that they met me. So anyways. <laughs> well, um, our first question is going to be from Itamar. Itamar, the floor is yours. So Imar, you I just mentioned say that, like, that, I feel like um, Jeff has your haircut, but like fast forward you and like if you were slightly more conservative, like in like tw in like 15 years, like. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I, I hope to keep my hair lined up. Um, so you mentioned that. Uh, um, that whether or not you should publish a person's name depends somewhat on who they are. And so political, uh, a political figure might, you might want to be more willing to de-anonymize. And so I'm curious, does that suggest that uh, different people have different rights to anonymity? I don't know, maybe in a legal sense or, or in a ethical, journalistic ethical sense, like who has more right to remain anonymous and who has less of a right to be anonymous? Yeah, so that's a great question. So legally, it's not about the status of the individual. Legally, it, and again, the First Amendment comes down to state action. So it's either a government requirement or a court-issued subpoena. Uh, and the courts have developed a variety of tests depending on the context, but it, it's more based on um, the level of interest in the identity as well as how narrowly tailored it is and other factors depending on exactly how it's being used. So it's not really gonna matter as much from a legal perspective. Um, I think ethically is really where, it come, where the status 
comes in is, you know, should, um, should we be doing it? And I think at least, I, I mean, I haven't been a journalist for a decade now, so I'm a bit rusty with this, but at least putting my journalist hat on, I would have looked at it um, very differently depending on if it were a politician or even a higher profile person than like a purely private individual. Okay, and then we're gonna have Mateo. Mateo, the floor is yours. Thanks. Uh, my question is uh, about whether or not there's a difference between privacy or uh, anonymity uh, according to the purpose that it serves. Um, like, for example, I think it's a, it seems to me like it's a different thing if I choose to hide my identity just because I prefer that you didn't know it uh, than if I'm it's because I'm saying something that could get me punished or censored wherever I am. And again, is a different thing, uh, as Alaric points out in the comment, uh, if I'm hiding my identity to avoid uh, getting in trouble for something that, that I've done or said. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if, if that intuition has any, any legal basis or if you think it has any uh, uh, ethical basis in, in how you know, journalists should maybe think about these things. Yeah, so legally, that's interesting. So I mean, legally, there's no absolute right to be anonymous. Uh, it might not be possible to de-anonymize someone if they're using Tor correctly, things like that. But um, legally, it, it's if you're doing something very bad, and there's sufficient evidence, and there's a subpoena, uh, even though the courts have set a high standard, uh, if the plaintiff or the government and like a grand jury subpoena case that they're, they're going to be able to unmask the person, but it has to be a very, I mean, the, the base, the sort of plain language is you have to have a really strong case. You can't just make sort of a summary allegation that someone did something bad. Um, I mean, ethically, I think that, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, plays somewhat of a role, but I will also say, and I mean, I personally think that uh, what Libs of TikTok is doing is very bad. Um, I'll also say that I've heard from a lot of people in the past 24 hours who strongly disagree with me on that. So um, they, so again, I mean, a lot of it will come down to your subjective uh, interpretation of that, but that's really more of the ethical issue than a legal one. I mean, if, if libs of TikTok were defaming people, um, wouldn't then defame, I think wouldn't defamation almost? I mean, it would be bad, but like, wouldn't it be like? So this is an sorry. I don't like. I don't want to go too off the rails because we're getting close to wrapping. But I do think that like defaming would be actually be interesting because like it would be a a known if it was libs of TikTok defaming people, it would kind of have like a little bit of like self-scrutiny that it invited hmm. and then there would also like but but like i think that actually the harassment that they just kind of like like drive is actually much more significant yeah i mean i so so yeah i i do so i mean in terms of defamation so i i'm not an expert on libs of tiktok since i just started looking at it yesterday but from the posts that i did see i mean there are really some awful things, but it strikes me, at least from what I saw, that it's opinion. And that's not 
going to be the basis for a defamation case. I mean, there's, and that's what so much of like the really awful stuff online, including things that might be characterized as misinformation, um, they do come down effectively to being even statements of very bad opinion. They're still opinion under defamation law, which is different than sort of how we think of opinion. So yeah, I mean, I think for harassment, I, I think that definitely it drives harassment. I mean, we've seen the anecdotes of that, but I don't know legally if we get, if we get there. Okay. Susan, the floor is yours. Hi, Susan. Hey, how are you? Um, so Jeff, I, um, pulled up a YouTube of you discussing your, um, book, the United States of Anonymous and watched it. And, uh, you were talking about the abuse of personal data. And I do not know as much about why um, the what the exposure is um, and what the abuse is of personal data. So what I was going to ask is, could you maybe give a worst case scenario? Because we all like to know what the disaster is so we can worry about it. But also what might be a baseline example of why people have to worry about that kind of stuff. Okay, so I would strongly recommend uh, Kashmir Hill's articles on Clearview AI. Um, I can pull these up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like the worst case scenario in my mind is not, it, maybe not the worst, a very bad case scenario is that. Um, it is the, and Clearview AI basically uh, scrapes public images and is facial recognition data that is available to law enforcement, um, and there are a few jurisdictions that have banned it because of the privacy concerns. Um, my sort of worst case scenario is that technology becoming widely deployed and available to for private use, um, so that some crazy <laughs> stalker sees someone on the street and uses it to quickly identify who they are and stalk them. Send them and a like, like that, instead of the cute like what was it used to be on craigslist that was like missed encounters misconnections misconnections it's like that except instead of misconnections it's like, like <laughs> horrible <Yeah>. encounters <laughs> yeah. yeah um okay so our last question is paula paula i don't know oh there you are and i wanted you to ask the question about the cross-platform one you had a couple in there which one is that um, the one that um, it spread beyond TikTok. Oh, so I was wondering, um, so I think this was mentioned if I read all these tweets correctly, that libs of TikTok was going to like start spreading to like Substack, for example, and start creating new platforms. And I was wondering not only how that changes things, but also like if Libs of TikTok becomes a business and starts like profiting off of merch, which I can't see is like a super extreme. Like, I don't think that's an extreme thing to imagine. I think it's quite easy to see them profiting off this in some way, how that um, changes the dynamic legally for them of what would be considered doxing in that sense if they're a, a business or a company. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if that I mean, legally, it can be done regardless, assuming that uh, the post isn't hacking into private data. I mean, if they're using public data, they can do it legally. 
Uh, ethically, I think maybe it weighs more in favor of uh, of unmasking. I think that you kind of get it. Another point that I had forgotten to make earlier, which is that this whole situation over the past two days has been amazing for libs of TikTok. Uh, there are a lot of people who have never heard of libs of TikTok before, and to the extent that they do any merchandising, they have a lot more people who have heard about them. It's kind of like a reverse double Streisand effect type thing where like um, uh, Streisand effect being like if you sue someone over content that you don't like that uh, that could actually bring more attention to it. This is if you're doing an article about content that you don't like, this might actually bring more attention to them. And I think it clearly has. Um, so I, I think libs of TikTok may very well benefit significantly from this. I mean, I think that libs of TikTok, this like catapults them, like, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it makes them Taylor Lorenz, whether this was her intention or not, has now managed to actually kind of martyr um, huh. the account in a certain type of way. Like, right. And like, I think that it's actually an interesting kind of normative question, which is like, is it better to kind of make an example of this or to keep ignoring it? I see this all the time. Like, I, I think that um, I was arguing about this with Siva um, Benethian on like on Twitter about Elon Musk and his buying of Twitter. And he was kind of like, everyone stop giving this oxygen. Everyone stop paying attention. Of course you hear this with everything. Like there's always like somebody who thinks that you shouldn't be giving something oxygen and there should be something that is like you're responding to and like shouting down. I don't know. Like, I think that this is going to be a solid mix in our, in our society. And all of this, by the way, as Jeff has labored to point out, and hopefully I have too, is like not really, these are not legal questions. These are very, very normative questions that the courts and laws do not really have a ton to say on and are not going to have a ton to say on for, I would say, like a decade. Like, I mean, like me, like if ever, like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know a lot of these questions. These are just not there's no claim in under the law unless we create it for some of these things to be adjudicated. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that at least based on this particular situation, I don't think that it would be possible under the first amendment to create some sort of restriction for particularly what Taylor did. I think that there are other situations where I think it is possible, but it, that's not what we're seeing here. Yeah. So a couple things. I am trying desperately to not make a spacesuit Elon Musk no oxygen joke, and I am failing because I'm mentioning it. Um, no, just like <laughs> shoot him off into space, and then we'll like, and we'll all be over. Um, but I did have a poll up at the beginning of the show, and it was much different then. So if anyone else wants to vote, please do it now. Oh, uh, this is I, so interesting. Right? Where like, yeah, um, I, interesting. The last one, Jeff. Do you see the poll at the bottom? It's oh, yeah. So the question was, how do you feel about an anonymity regarding online speech and anonymity? Um, sorry. Um, and so there's 38%. Oh, changed again. 
oh, guys, you're screwing yeah, up my numbers. Are, but, they, but they just got a lot more information. So now yeah. I want to see if they just like, if they cha we change anyone's mind. All right. Vote quickly or don't vote at all. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, please vote. But right now we're about 40% are ardently for it. Um, there are 25.5% who are suspicious of on, uh, anonymity regarding online speech. 23% um, say they need more information. And 7.7% think everyone should be identified. Does that so. like jive with your what you would expect, Jeff? What do you think? Um, I would guess probably that this audience is not representative of the general <laughs> public. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there that that's generally like when I when I'm talking about anonymity, I think that's roughly the the breakdown that I see. Yeah. All right guys, thank you. Thank Great you for fun. voting. And Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jeff, this is really fun. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. Okay, so um we will be back on Friday. Uh as far as I know at five PM. Um and until then Kate Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone be kind to one.